Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And we talk <clears throat> from verses 1 through 14 in our last lesson last Sunday evening. <clears throat> and we talk about the privileges of the saints. We first showed our position, then our portion, our practice, our prayer, and our praise down through verse 14. But tonight we want to deal with the remainder of the chapter at least. And verses 15 through 29, we're going to see the person and work of Christ. And we're going to see the magnificent person and the matchless work and the mysterious fact. Three things. The magnificent person, beginning with verse 15. So we'll read uh, the chapter beginning with verse 15 through the remainder, and then we'll come back and and, uh, try to expound it a little bit. I said last Sunday evening that I have often wished that a preacher would get up and take a portion of Scripture and just try to give me everything that was there and what it meant. And so what I wish other preachers would do, I'm going to try to do for you. And I hope that may be something you've wanted sometimes for a preacher to take a passage of Scripture and let you know what is said there in that passage of Scripture. And uh, trusting that will be sufficient food for our souls, we'll try to do exactly that. Beginning with verse 15, speaking of Christ, of course, it says, Who is the image of the invisible God, <clears throat> the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Christ, should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you uh, you that were sometime alienated and enemies, in your mind by wicked work, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, and, yeah, and from generations, that now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, 
striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. So Paul was no slouch in applying himself to his ministry, was So he did it with a great deal of, of labor and striving to get the message out and to do exactly what God would have him do. We're talking now about the person and work of Christ. And we'll start with verse 15. First of all, I want you to notice in verse 15 it says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. We're talking about uh, an inaccessible likeness to God. In other words, an inaccessible light which no man can see or has seen. He's the image not of the visible God. Christ pulled out God in the flesh and showed us what God the Father was like. Remember, uh, in the first chapter of John, it says uh, that the Word became flesh uh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld its glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then it tells us, let me read something else in John chapter 1, if you will. It tells us uh, something very important, full of grace and truth, it says in verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That means he hath told him out. He's revealed him. So what we're seeing is that Christ in the flesh revealed the Father. That was, He revealed him to us so that we could visibly see that God was a God uh, of love and grace and and a mercy and compassion, and he showed us the Father in human form as he revealed him to us so that he could uh, communicate the Father to us. But he, it says here in this passage we just read that he is the image of the invisible God. So he's like God is when he cannot be seen. And someone might say, how could he be the image of something that is unseeable? or that you cannot see. So this is what we're talking about, this inaccessible life that no man can behold. The Bible says no man can look upon God and live. Uh, we know that no no angels can even see the fullness of the glory of God, even though that he's surrounded by him. Yet he must uh, be, in a sense, veiled from all, all uh, other creatures because of his uh, the splendor of his glory. Now, you, you remember the vision of Isaiah. Isaiah saw the seraphims round about the throne, and with twain they covered his, their face. Two of their, uh, each one had six wings. With twain they covered their face. With twain they covered their feet, and with twain they did fly. So it shows a falling back, even in the presence of the Holy God, of the heavenly creatures in God's presence. So what we're saying here is that here is a light that is beyond human, at least human, uh, accessibility. So, he's the image of the invisible God. Look in Hebrews chapter 1, we'll give you something. It says in verse 3, to being the brightness of his glory. Now look at this. Christ is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. You see that? So Christ is the the brightness of the very glory of God. And he's the express image of the person of God. We find at least one instance in the uh, Gospels where Jesus was transfigured before 
Peter, James, and John on that high mountain of transfiguration when they went apart from the world to pray. And he was transfigured before them. And the Bible says his face did shine as the sun and his race was white as the light. And these three in human form had to fall to the ground for the brightness of that glory. See? So that Jesus shined forth that glory from within. Now even though he was in human form and veiled in flesh so that on purpose he could walk among men. And Peter, James, and John could go with it. Yet there was an instant of time that they couldn't behold that brightness. And so they fell upon their faces with the brightness of that uh, glory of Christ. So we see somewhat of it here in this 15th verse. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Now then when it says the firstborn of every creature, that means he's the first of all creation. Not that he was ever created because he is the source of all creation. Uh, some people have tried this to indicate that there was a time that God created Christ. But the scripture teaches altogether different from that. The, the scripture teaches that Christ is the creator, and if he is the creator, he couldn't create himself. If all creation had to come from him, and he is a part of creation, he certainly couldn't make himself. So he had to be before all creation, and that's why it means, uh, why it expresses in the next verse, the next two verses, tell out what this verse says when it means the firstborn of all creation. It means he was before all creation. Not that he was a part of that creation. That's what we're trying to say. So it says, <clears throat> I want us to see, first of all, uh, in, in studying this portion of the person of Christ, I want us to see three things. First of all, is his relation to God. We've already pointed out just a bit about that. And then his relation to creation. And then third, his relation to the church. So to God, to creation, and to the church. So we come to that second part of this thought. It says, for by him were all things created. Now if by Christ all things were created, then he, he could not be a created being himself, could he? Because if all things were created by him, he had to be before all anything was created. And we can get other references to show you the proof of this uh, as we go along. All things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So uh, he is at the head of all creation. There are four things we need to see. He's the creator of the universe. They were created for himself. And he was part of all creation, and that he is the preserver and governor of all creation. The next verse shows us that. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. That he governs creation. Look at the person of Christ. How do we know? Is this the only scripture? If you turn to John chapter 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. The Word was God and was in the beginning with God. Now, I know you have some that will try to, to make this as if uh, the person of Christ come into being, came into being at some point in time after this beginning. But the scripture bears out that the Word that was with God was eternally with God, and this Word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Christ. 
Now in verse 3 it says, all things were made by him. That word was him. The word was God. And all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, eternal life. And the life was the light of men, and so on and so forth. Everything is full of meaning, but we won't have time to expound every verse of that passage. But if you look in Hebrews chapter 1 again, and I've quoted this to you time and time again, uh, let's begin reading with verse 6. It says, And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship thee. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So you have God's word about the angels. But now then in verse 8, But unto the Son, this is Hebrews 1.8, Unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This is uh, pointing out the anointing of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit on Christ as on no other person that ever lived. And then in verse 10, it, he continues to say, And thou, Lord... In the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hand. Look at that. God attributes all of heaven, heaven's creation and earth's creation to the hands of Christ. And then he goes on to say, They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? The angels are ministering spirits of Christ, creator of all things. Now then, back in our passage in Colossians, chapter 1. So we've seen his relationship to God. We've seen his relationship to creation. Now look at the church. It says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Look, his relationship to the church as head of the church. You know, I'm afraid that this is one point that we as preachers and sometimes as laymen forget. We talk about who's the head. Christ is the head of the church. And the energy and working power within the church must be not you and I, but the Holy Spirit of God. He is the administrator. He is the power. Christ is the head. From him everything comes. And when he sends his spirit among us and within us and, and uses his Holy Spirit to direct us and guide us, this is when the church is thoroughly, heavenly, and spiritually. And only then. You know, we can have the best program in the world. We can have a good outline for a sermon. We can have everything fixed and the best organization there is. We can have it all fixed up and just just hope and pray we've done the best we can. But unless the head of the church is recognized, unless that one that has the power to do things in the church and in our midst is, is evident and present in your life and mine and in the midst of us, then very little is accomplished. It's all flesh, isn't it? And human organization and human beings trying to do what we're unable to do. Jesus said, now listen, Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. 
Now, he didn't say, without me, you can do something. He didn't say, without me, you can do this or that or the other. But absolutely, I believe that that is actual fact. We cannot breathe without the Lord. We cannot get out of bed in the morning. We cannot go out about our work. And God permits some of this energy and some of this to be as a matter of course. But on the other hand, when it comes especially to spiritual things, we must apply this rule. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. So anything that's accomplished eternally for God must come through the Lord himself working as the head of the church and through the anointing or empowering and guiding of his Holy Spirit to, to make something work in a spiritual way. Now, I can get up here and do my best to, to teach you this word. And I can study it and prepare, which I should do, because the Bible tells servants of God, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that is a responsibility that rests upon me. But unless, as I'm teaching, unless the Holy Spirit directs these words and makes it understandable and applies it to your own heart and life so that you get it, then it won't do too much good for me to, in other words, I'm, I'm really wasting a lot of time. It's like you ever go out here and get on, you know, uh, get your automobile stuck in the mud and you'll just spin your wheel. That's what we're doing a lot of times. We're just sitting there spinning our wheels. And if we make any progress, it's because the Lord gives us the power to progress, to go go forth. And so we must remember, uh, we, we have a responsibility, but we must have a dependence upon God as well. So he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. If you'll notice verse uh, 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness. This is the Father's will, that in his Son, uh, if you look at verse 13, it says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. That means the Son of his love, the Son on whom his love rests. And this Son, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. All of the love of the Father is directed to his Son. All of the, you say, well, isn't some of God's love directed to us only through Christ? He loved us through Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so uh, then Jesus could come around and say, the Father himself loveth you. How? Because the Father loves you so much that I came down from heaven's glory to die voluntarily and lovingly and willingly on the cross for your salvation and to provide redemption through my shed blood. Jesus didn't go around and say, uh, it's all of me, but God said it's all of me. If you that, have that passage in Hebrews that I read to you, uh, in verse 3, Hebrews 1, verse 3, we were talking about the brightness of his glory, in verse 3, and the express image of his person, that he upholds all things by the word of his power, that would uh, constitute the continuance and governing of this great universe. And then look at the last part of it, please. When he had by him. Well, for God's sake, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at that. By himself. When it came to the work of the cross, the Father committed this work to the Son. It's true that God was in Christ, as the Bible says, reconciling the world to himself. But it's also true that Jesus Christ says, I love my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. I have power. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it up again, to resurrect. 
So by himself, talk about purgatory. That's the only place of purging there is, is the cross of Christ. You can't purge your sin that you spent from now on the rest of a millennium or throughout eternity. You couldn't purge and wash away one of your sins. Cleanse yourself of your sins. You cannot put away sins. It took Christ and his death to put away sin. Put away sin by the sacrifice of his And you know, you've got folks today going around trying to purge themselves. Now, I realize we, we need to dedicate ourselves. I re- realize we need to, to exercise ourselves unto God in it. But as far as dealing with sin, you and I can only do as God uh, leads us as a Christian even. But he's the one that is the perjurer, and he has cleansed us. The Bible says in Revelation 1, verse 5, unto him that loveth and loveth us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We're washed in the blood of the Lamb. We sing a song. Uh, washed in the blood. All right? So, back to this now. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. All the fullness of the Word of God points to Christ. All the Bible points to Christ. If you read in Luke's Gospel, you'll find after the resurrection that Jesus expounded to them in all the Scriptures. Beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded them to them in all the Scriptures. Then he opened their understanding that they could understand the Scriptures. All the Scriptures, the things concerning himself. Himself. Wouldn't you have to have been there when Jesus expounded all the Scriptures concerning himself? You know, I used to love to hear a teacher open up the book of Genesis and take take uh, the ark, Noah's ark, and show how it's a perfect picture of salvation. Not only one ark, only one door. It had a window above. You could look up. It had one door halfway, and everything had to enter in on the same level. Uh, it was sealed with pitch. After Noah was in there, it was it was sealed. God sealed the door, I should say. God shut the door and sealed him in. And you know, God was on the inside, and he gave Noah the invitation. He just come down all thy house into the ark. So God must have been inside there. And when it was over, when the flood was over, God said to Noah, go forth from the ark. So he must have been inside with him. Go forth from the ark. I don't mean that God can be confined to the bounds of God, but I mean God was in there and God told him to go out as well as God being everywhere present. But what I'm saying is, when I'd hear a preacher expound and open up some of those types and shadows of, of the uh, plan of salvation from Noah's Ark or from the Ark of Blue in which uh, Moses was uh, put, and the Ark of the Covenant wherein the, the law was contained, and all of those things expounded, I would marvel at that spiritual food that I received from the Word of God. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Jesus to expound unto them in all the scripture things concerning himself? He began to open up back there in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and Ruth and in the Kings and Prophets and Psalms and all those things. Must have been a wonderful listening. Well, anyway, back to this. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. We could talk about the preeminence of Christ in all things, in the work of creation, in the work of redemption. He has the preeminence. We've already touched upon that. In the church itself and in all the churches. And he'll have the preeminence in heaven because the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, as far as heaven is concerned, that God has given him a name. He has exalted him, given him a name which Every name that is the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
All right, let's go on down and see something else quickly as our time getting away. It says in verse uh, 20, now we're seeing the matchless work of Christ. First of all, God's glorious purpose is to reconcile, to reconcile. And the objects of that reconciliation are you and I who are alienated and enemy. Now let's look at verse 20 and 21. It says, in having made peace, notice that past that's done after Christ made peace on the cross. Through the blood of his cross, look at that. Man was at enmity with God. God's wrath was resting upon mankind because of sin. In other words, you and I could not approach a holy God because we were at enmity with God. We were not in harmony. We had sinned against God. But Christ said, I'll fix that. I'll make peace. And he made peace between man and God. And he became the mediator between God and men. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. See? And so, having made peace, then he, he says, I'm going to bring them both together. You know, Job cried for a daysman or a mediator, I one that could lay his hand upon God, one that could lay his hand upon sinful man and bring them together and say, it's okay now. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He made peace. He said, he said to the sinful man, it's okay now. I stand the gap. I borne the judgment of sin, the blood of sin. And now uh, God is ready to accept you. You're acceptable in the sight of a holy God, not because you're holy, but because I have stand the gap. I've made it possible. We sing a song, let's see. I believe it's the one at Calvary. There's some verse that shows uh, God's love standing that gap. Christ's work on the cross at Calvary standing that gap between God and man. So, oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it now down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span. What? At Calvary. That's it. Okay. So look at this. He made peace through the blood of his cross. You know, sometimes we talk about a person making peace with God. Have you made your peace with God? You do not actually doctrinally make your peace with God. Now, I know you repent. I know you accept the Lord as Lord and Savior. And thus, you will be able to receive the peace that Christ has made, and you will have peace with God. Romans 5.1. Now, listen. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have. Doesn't say we may peace with God, but we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. But Romans chapter four, the last two verses, tells us of Abraham's faith, and by his faith there was righteousness given to him. God accounted him righteous. And it says it wasn't written for Abraham's sake alone, but for us also. If we believe what? If we believe believe on him, on Christ, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. So our faith in Christ's death and resurrection brings us to the Romans 5 one, therefore, believing this, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We accept the peace that Christ has made. That's what it is. Doctrinally, that is Now, you say, well, I'm at peace with God. Well, that's, that's great. Because after you have the peace of God in your heart that Christ made, the Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. The Bible uh, speaks of the peace of God, and we should have that. And we do have it. But how could you have peace with God? How could you make peace with God apart from Christ's death on the cross? See, it took his death to make the peace. And because he's made the peace, you can have it, and you can enjoy it. You can say, I'm at peace with God. Why? God's no longer mad at me because 
his judgment upon my sins fell upon my substitute on the cross of Calvary, and I don't have to bear that anymore, and therefore I can be at peace with God. And it's all through Christ. There's no way that any human being will ever discredit the merit of Christ for his salvation, nor should we ever try, of course. But on the other hand, if you were to even indicate that you had a part in it yourself, you're taking away from the full merit and the full substitutionary work of Christ. That's why salvation is totally and completely by grace through faith. Someone says, well, the Bible says salvation is by work. The Bible shows you the fruit of salvation produces work, and this is the natural, or this is the spiritual result, I should say, instead of natural, this is the spiritual result of real, true faith in Jesus Christ, but that is not the merit of your salvation. That's work. It's only the result of it and the outflow. The Bible says, He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Someone says, well, Philippians 1 also says, uh, now listen carefully. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and faith. It does. You know what the next verse says? How are you working it out? For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good place. You're working it out all right, but you know, it's pretty hard to work out a corn crop if you don't have a corn crop. If you've got salvation, it's easy enough to work it out because you can let God work through you. You're working it out. But if you don't have any salvation to start with, you don't have anything to work out. So you would have to have salvation by grace before you can apply works to that salvation, before you can begin to do anything about it and make works a part of your life as a Christian. And that's simply what he's talking it's not talking about earning your salvation and you meriting your salvation. You know, I believe we have to be very clear about these points that I'm trying to bring over to you. Because you have all kinds of doctrine floating around in this world today. You've got Galatianism, which is a mixture of the two, salvation by faith and salvation by work. And Paul says it cannot be. He said, if it's work, if you're justified by work, then Christ died in vain. If you're justified by keeping the works of the law, he says, what? why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Have you ever thought about that? If one man could be saved by work, then all of us could be saved by work. If one man could be righteous enough to go to heaven, then all of us could be righteous enough to go to heaven. But the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there is none righteous, no, not one. Well, I've spent a lot of time on that. I didn't think I was going to uh, take that long. But let's go on and we'll give you something else. In verse 20 it says, By him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Someone might say, and I'm not going to slide this just because I'm short of time. Let me give you this. Someone might say, well, what is there to reconcile in heaven? If you think of it in this way, all the souls of the redeemed of the Old Testament had already gone uh, to be with the Lord, so to speak. But anticipating the death of Christ, and if Christ hadn't died on the cross, there's no soul of the Old Testament to be saved as well as any of the new. Things in heaven and things in earth. So the earthly redemption and salvation by grace through faith is tied into Christ's death on the cross. For us, you and I, after the cross, just the same as all of the Old Testament saints were tied onto the future coming death of Christ on the cross. And had he not died on the cross, they couldn't be saved. So, 
His redemption affected all the redeemed souls that were already in glory. Remember, Moses and Elijah were already up there, right? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were already with the Lord because uh, God says to Moses at the burning bush, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who have departed all on already. And he says, I'm not the God of the dead, but of what? The living for all live unto him. And they were already dead, but they were still with God. And so the Bible teaches that their redemption rested upon the uh, blood of Christ that was to be shed in the future. And they looked to that. That's how Abraham could be justified by faith. That's how all the Old Testament could, faith could be justified. The blood sacrifices that they that they uh, saw uh, uh, sacrificed were all pointing to a future time in which there would be one sacrifice for sin forever, and Christ would be seated on the right hand of God after it's all said and done, and set his seal of approval upon uh, the redemption by blood, and never have to offer any more sacrifice for sin. You read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, and it says, By one offer he is perfected forever, them that are sanctified. It tells us, Read 10 through 14. It says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now, the, the priests offered daily, didn't they? They offered daily and yearly for the redemption or atonement of Israel on a yearly basis and sacrifices daily. But Christ offered one sacrifice for sin forever. Hebrews 9, 12 tells us this, Neither by the blood of goats and calves. Now, listen carefully. But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, that is the holy place in heaven, having obtained already past tense eternal redemption for us. It's already signed, sealed, and delivered. He obtained eternal redemption for us. Someone said, I've been redeemed. Well, then if you have been, you've been redeemed with an eternal redemption. He saved you with an everlasting salvation. What the Lord doeth, he doeth forever. So, things in heaven, things in earth. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, that you and I as Gentiles, yet now hath he reconciled. Not only the Jewish believers were lost, I mean the Jewish unbelievers were lost and had to be saved and believe on Christ, but especially here the ones that are alienated and enemies, speaking of the Gentile unsaved, had to be reconciled to God. And I got my tongue twisted there a minute, if you'll forgive me. In verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you, now this is how he wants to present you, holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Holy before God, unblameable by anyone else, and unreprovable even by uh, not only men but Satan himself. We have a perfect standard when we shall be presented in his presence. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, uh, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. And it says to, to continue in this faith. If you continue in the faith. Paul says, I've fought a good fight, I've kept the faith. The true believer not only begins in the faith, but he continues. In other words, if you have a living faith, you're not going to lose it. Some people say, well, I might lose faith. Well, the Bible says you're kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation. It's your faith, all right, in God, but it's his power that keeps you. Peter tells us that in the first chapter of First Peter. Now then, which is preached under every preacher under heaven, where I call and made a minister. 
Now, I won't have time to expound all of that, but I might say this, that it was preached to every creature, not every individual being, but it was preached to Jews and Gentiles, what Paul is saying, that the gospel is open to all. We know that there are people on this earth even today that have never heard. And so when we're talking about hearing the gospel around the world, we're talking about something uh, that would have to apply to every individual, if you put it that way. We know there are several ways you can read this verse. First of all, which would preach to every creature which is under heaven. We could say this, first of all, that uh, as far as, as the heaven testimony is concerned, as far as heaven's testimony is concerned to all men, of even of the heathen nations around the world. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows its handiwork. Day into day out of sleep, night into night, Short knowledge. There's no land and no language where their voice is not heard. So we could say that the heavens give out a witness to all the world. But we're not talking about the preaching of the gospel. But on the day of the uh, of Pentecost, basically it reached out to both Jews and Gentiles. And then uh, we find that since they are represented in all this number, that I believe that's what Paul is talking about, which is uh, a Hebrew way of of indicating that the gospel was freely preached or given out to all when it says preached to every preacher under heaven, including both Jews and Gentiles. Whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my place for his body's sake, which is the church. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, and Paul's purpose was to reveal this mystery even the mystery which had been hid from ages and generations, that now is made manifest to its saints, and that was that the Gentiles, now listen, should be fellow heirs and partakers of the gospel, the same as the Jews. See, they could partake of the, the blessings of God, because the gospel was to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. And you, Ephesians 3, verse 3 will help you in that, and I won't go back and give you all of Ephesians verse 3, chapter 3, but you study that. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this mystery has to do with the salvation of you and I, Gentile believers, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. last several verses I didn't get to expound to you, but thought we'd just read them anyway. We thank you for your patience, and I know it's been a little bit long, but let's uh, stand together and bow heads for a word of prayer.